Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome the Hedgehog and the Fox. My name is George Miller, and this week my guest is Megan Warner-Mettler, who's an assistant professor of history at Upper Iowa University. Megan is the author of the recent book, How to Reach Japan by Subway, America's Fascination with Japanese Culture, 1945-1965. Megan's book is itself fascinating, charting as it does the many ways in which Americans eagerly embraced aspects of Japanese culture as part of the US's post-war 180-degree pivot in its attitude to Japan. During the Second World War, Japan was the US's mortal enemy, a reality conveyed in wartime propaganda that dealt in crude, even subhuman stereotypes of the Japanese. There was depictions in uh, political cartoons and the media of uh, Japanese as apes, as lice, as rats, fleas, vermin, um, all kinds of sort of lesser people. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the image of the kamikaze pilot, which is, you know, these fanatical soldiers who are rushing headlong into death um, because they are, you know, the seemingly inhuman devotion uh, to their emperor and their country. And there was also a lot of discussion of the Japanese almost as having a hive mind. Post-war, in the new Cold War era, Japan became a valued ally in the Far East, and the old stereotypes were ditched in favour of a new, more positive view of the people and their culture. Political realities subtly shaped tastes, and in the 1950s, middle-class Americans began studying the Japanese art of flower arranging and bonsai cultivation or attending Japanese movies in new art house cinemas, reading up about Zen Buddhism, or trying to reflect a Japanese design aesthetic in their homes. A New York Times contributor wrote in 1960, Almost any mention of Japan will bring exclamations of delight, even at hardened cocktail parties, and rare is the home that lacks one or two oriental touches. This craze for Japanese culture was selective, though. It represented a particular view of what Japan was, a very different view from the reality of the country that the US occupied until 1952, which was struggling to get back on its feet, to modernise, industrialise. Before we get on to those questions, I started by asking Megan how her own interest in Japan began. 
Okay. Well, yeah, if we really want to go back, it's you know, probably has to do with, you know, back in grade school and like my actual background. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and around my elementary school in particular, there were a lot of um, houses where they had uh, the families who worked at the Japanese embassy. So in any given year, we'd usually have a few kids in our class who were actually Japanese nationals um, and some of whom I were, was friends with. And also this meant like in our classrooms, we'd have their parents come in and they'd teach us about Japanese culture. So like from a very young age, I was exposed to Japanese culture, I think, more than a lot of Americans are. Um, and also, you know, making friends with these Japanese kids. You know, I, you know, saw them from a very young age as normal, regular kids, just like myself. And so I think a lot of that kind of would almost be like the, you know, the psychological background of I'm interested in Japan because I've been learning about the culture since I was like eight years old. And I think one of the threads that, you know, comes through in this book is that, you know, Americans should be treating Japan just like anyone else. So I think, yeah, that background is kind of where it comes from. And so this sort of followed through, you know, undergraduate uh, history major. I had a choice of different fields. I went with an Asian field there. And then uh, in graduate school, U.S. culture was my main field, what I was most interested in. Um, but then they ask you to pick what they call a teaching field. Um, and I went with Asian history there as well. And then, you know, when it was time to pick a topic for my dissertation, I sort of combined the first field in American culture and that teaching field in Asian history. And that came together sort of as this project. And was there a light bulb moment where you thought, ah, this is a this is a really interesting story that hasn't been approached in, in quite this way before? Or was it sort of gradually dawning on you that there was lots of activity in, in different fields that you could bring together? Um, yeah, I don't know if it was like specifically a light bulb moment. It was it was sort of like uh, there was a lot of, you know, negotiating, kind of working things out with my advisor. I mean, I think I had a notion of combining, you know, the US culture with uh, Asian history as in like looking at how Americans have perceived Japan. And I think uh, initially I sort of had an idea to do pre-World War II. It was actually sort of the opposite of what I wound up doing was like how it disintegrates um, leading up to World War II. But then my advisor said, like, there's a huge literature on that. Why don't you look at after World War II, because there's not a lot on that. And to be honest, I'm glad I did, because it is, you know, a much more positive topic. In a lot of ways, it's Americans taking a favorable view of Japan uh, to live with this project for years. I think I'm happy I wound up with that. Then as I got into it, yeah, I realized there was a lot of different fields to pursue going down this, that it's like I learned a lot about horticulture and a lot about... <laughs> Uh, Zen Buddhism uh, that I never thought I would. I learned a lot more about the life of Jack Kerouac than I ever thought I would. So yeah, it really, I mean, that was, I think, one thing that surprised me about the project is is just how many directions it goes in and how many facets of American culture that this Japan trend touched upon in some way. I really loved the way that the ideas in your book intersect with things like the rise of the art house cinema or the drive-in as a phenomenon in the 50s or the, the, pop the popularity of paperback books. It's all, it's all kind of interwoven. Right, right. And yeah, I guess that's, that's one thing I did not... I think from the beginning it was like, oh, I'm just going to have this whole thing about how Americans are short-sighted and slightly racist when they look at Japan and everything else. But then it's like, yeah, all these other aspects of American culture at the time that this revealed just American culture in and of itself, yeah, I think is a little bit of a surprise to me with this. So I thought, because I think you've described this as the, the, the biggest um, about face in the US's 
attitude to any foreign country at any time. I thought it might be useful just to go back to the war and to ask you to say a little bit about the view of the Japanese that was promulgated in the war in order to sort of measure the distance that had to be travelled by the time we get to the period that your book focuses on. So what, what was propaganda doing? What kind of view of, of Japanese and Japanese culture was, was US propaganda um, using in the, in the Second World War? Yeah, well, it was it was pretty low, of course. Um, and I feel like I can't talk about this subject without mentioning John Dower's wonderful book, War Without Mercy, which, uh, you know, it was published in the 1980s, but has aged incredibly well. It's just a great uh, explication and unpacking of all the uh, anti-Japanese propaganda during uh, World War II. But really, I mean, what it's talking a lot about is a lot of dehumanization was sort of the main thing that was going on. There was depictions in uh, political cartoons and the media of uh, Japanese as apes as lice, as rats, fleas, vermin, um, all kinds of sort of lesser people. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the image of the kamikaze pilot, which is, you know, these fanatical soldiers who are rushing headlong into death um, because they are, you know, the seemingly inhuman devotion uh, to their emperor and their country. And there was also a lot of discussion of the Japanese almost as having a hive mind uh, during World War II that, uh, you know, they were all sort of programmed by their leaders and they would fight to the death, would never surrender. And just, you know, these absolutely brutal, fanatical people who, well, not even necessarily people, as I said, they were, you know, sort of subhumans. And the warfare against the Japanese, I mean, it was incredibly brutal. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how much people realize today, like uh, the way I talk about it with students sometimes is it was kind of a preview for Vietnam, what was going on in the South Pacific in some cases. I mean, there were, you know, it's that same style of, of jungle warfare, um, you know, guerrilla tactics uh, started to be used by both sides. And Americans, like they would take trophies from Japanese soldiers that they had killed, like they would make collections of ears and teeth. Um, the most infamous uh, example was that one soldier sent a bleached and preserved Japanese skull back to his girlfriend in Kansas. And there's actually a picture of it in Life magazine. If you Google it, uh, you'll see this woman looking very quizzically at this uh, preserved Japanese skull. So it was incredibly brutal from sort of the perception of Americans towards Japan during the war. And the perceptions of Japanese culture, like I said, is that it's kind of, they are this sort of hive, hive mind of uh, fanatically devoted, people who are fanatically devoted to the emperor. Um, they don't think for themselves. They're, they're not really human. And uh, their culture is also, you know, it's backwards and it's hierarchical. And that is what is leading them towards this fanaticism. And it wasn't until I was sort of finishing up the project, I actually did find a quotation somewhere that uh, mentioned how stupid the tea ceremony was. It's just like, oh, yeah, Japanese culture, you know, just dismiss it because it's backward and it's all these silly little rituals the Japanese do. Um, so really, yeah, any negative spin they could put um, on Japanese culture, they did. And I think one other thing, too, getting a little more analytical, is that uh, it was also a more masculine depiction, um, as I mentioned in the book, that it's sort of the image of Japan turns from the uh, kamikaze pilot into more like the geisha image. Um, so it was, yeah, sort of this, this fanatical, very angry, crazy, violent male perception uh, of uh, Japan, Japan and its culture and what that was all about um, is something that stands in big contrast, World War II versus post-war. And that, um, that book that you mentioned called The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which comes along in 1945, it seemed to me, from what you said, to be the sort of the perfect 
epitome of this of this 180 degree pivot that was going to be performed in order to turn the image of the Japanese from being militaristic into be cultured and aesthetic and gentle and refined and and all these things which come to prevail. Can you say a little bit about the, the, that that book and the sort of what it contained? Okay, yeah. So the book, yeah, it's it's interesting. It was written by Ruth Benedict, who was an anthropologist. And one of the things that I found, you know, it was just kind of floored by the first time I read it is the introduction. She mentioned she had never been to Japan. She did not actually do any field research for this herself. She just read a bunch of other people's books and synthesized it. And I mean, it's a little understandable in 1945. You can't really go to Japan when we're at war with them. It's sort of like the chrysanthemum and the sword. It's like this metaphor for, you know, two different directions that Japanese culture can go in, but they're both kind of based on the sense of discipline and stoicism. So, you know, the sword is martial arts and Bushido and the samurai and everything else. And then the chrysanthemum is going to be yeah, refined arts, the flower arranging, the haiku poetry, the tea ceremony. But yeah, it all comes from sort of this, yeah, very restrained, almost repressive um, sort of uh, approach to or characterization of Japanese culture. And it's interesting in the book, um, she goes into, or I don't know if interesting is the right word, it's kind of weird actually. There's a lot of talk about toilet training in the book. Um, I think that she's using as an example of how children are raised kind of repressed in Japanese society. So it seems her thesis is sort of that, yeah, like the Japanese have this very confined, you know, repressed or disciplined almost to the point of repression culture and that can be pushed either towards, you know, violent ends like the sword or these, you know, more peaceful artistic ends like the chrysanthemum. And I don't know how much actually when that was published in 1945, I'm not sure like when she was writing it, how much of a sense she had that the war was, the end of the war was imminent and that, you know, this would be then applied to peacetime as like switching from the chrysanthemum to the, to the sword. Um, when I mentioned in the book that that is what uh, the U.S. government did. I think that was more, you know, in retrospect, that was kind of what they decided to do. But yeah, she definitely saw in the book there was the potential for both, yeah, violence and peace coming out of her characterization of Japanese culture. And I think you say that book, although it didn't have a wide readership in, in 45, it was influential in the State Department. And I wondered how explicit was this policy of sort of recharacterizing and representing Japanese culture to the American public? And how much was it sort of emergent? I didn't, I have not come across anything that was like a specific policy where somebody in the State Department wrote down, oh, we're going to depict Japan in a more positive light. Um, the closest there is is uh, National Security Council documents that uh, say, well, it's actually like in the midst of the occupation, say that, you know, we are going to essentially stop punishing Japan and start rebuilding them as an important ally in the Cold War. So really the most you have down on paper is this official statement of Japan is now our friend and ally, which is released like two years after World War II ends, Japan surrenders. But in terms of, yeah, the whole cultural shift, it wasn't all that directed. Speeches will be talking about, you know, the, the Japanese as people that we are going to teach and encourage. And, and actually, I think a good, well, a good example, um, now that I think of it, there is a movie, Our Job in Japan, that's released by the U.S. Army that was shown to U.S. soldiers who were going to be part of the occupation. It sets up this premise of the Japanese brain which can be programmed either to blindly follow the emperor and be violent, or it can be reprogrammed to, in its words, start thinking sense uh, and have good American values. 
I mean, there is this official idea of, you know, let's emphasize the good in the Japanese, they can be taught. So I guess maybe, yeah, then the other side of that coin would be, you know, hey, the Japanese are being taught uh, and let Americans have a more positive image of them in turn. But uh, yeah, I'd say that's those two things are about the closest to get to anything official. Most of it is just, you know, civic minded museum uh, directors and uh, journalists who kind of have this idea of, yeah, let's promote this positive image of Japan now that they're our ally in the Cold War, now that the occupation is going well, and we are, we are rehabilitating these people who are now our friends. I think it was a lot of, yeah, just voluntary private citizens sort of picking up that football and running with it is uh, how a lot of this actually happened. And as you indicated earlier, I think we're not we're not talking about going from a state of a prevailing racist view to the absence of that. We're talking about going to maybe a, a more benign, if we can if we can describe it like that, a benign form of racism. I mean, are, are we are we talking about a, a species of Orientalism here? Is that is that a fair way to to characterize it? Yeah, I would I would say so. And I do mention, you know, Edward Said in the uh, introduction. And of course, it's like, well, Said is writing about 19th century Britain and France looking at the Middle East. But yeah, that same idea of, you know, these people are going to be other and they are going to be separate and they are really not going to be allowed to speak for themselves very often. Or if they can speak for themselves, only those who agree with what we say um, will be doing that. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of elements of that, too, and especially also some specific characteristics of Orientalism that, you know, Saeed writes about the Orient is often feminized. That very clearly is going on here. Uh, it's often thought of as backward and timeless. Um, that's definitely ways that Americans are thinking of Japan at this point in time is that it is this. It's like this fascinating ancient culture but it's ancient. It doesn't really quite belong in the modern world. They need American help to get caught up uh, and learn our values and how to function in the 20th century. Um, so yeah, I think that idea of uh, sort of being ancient and childlike at the same time uh, is a pattern that you see a lot of times with uh, Orientalism and definitely uh, can be seen here with uh, US treatment of Japan as well. And a very interesting characteristic is it's coming in at the at the sort of upper middle class level. So it's not it's not a pop cultural phenomenon. It's coming in at the sort of museum curator, the magazine profile kind of level, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, you know, there's like well-to-do suburbanites who read those magazines, go to those exhibits, uh, who buy into this same uh, rhetoric and discourse as well. But yeah, it's really, it's specifically, you know, uh, aspiring white people for the most part um, that become part of this trend. Uh, most, you know, working class Americans, uh, racial minorities who aren't Japanese American, of course, uh, tend to just largely ignore it. And I don't know like how much hostility among the working class remains towards the Japanese uh, following World War II that... You know, there might be a sense, did these other groups, you know, not quite get over the resentment of the war as much? Um, it's hard to know because, you know, of course, these groups, the disfranchised groups that I'm discussing, they don't leave as many records. They did not quite have a mouthpiece in the press. So, yeah. So I don't know if as you can read into that, the working class was still more anti-Japanese or just that they had other styles of decoration that they were, that they preferred and they just really pay much attention to this. So, Hard to know. You mentioned the Japanese Americans there, and I guess 
you know, they had been interned in the war, they'd suffered um, racial discrimination. I guess you, on one view, you might think, well, they would have welcomed this much more positive presentation of Japanese culture. But from the book, it's, it's, a, it's a much more ambiguous reaction that you get from Japanese Americans. It is. And this was something that was, yeah, really difficult because it is not, I mean, they're not one solid block of people, you know, they are very diverse. And there's huge disparity between uh, the first generation Issei, second generation Nisei, that is, you know, those who were born in America, you know, they grew up with American sports and American cuisine and the English language, and few of them could ever learn to read or write Japanese. Um, and they're, yeah, they're, most of them are pretty thoroughly Americanized. So, you know, even talking about Japanese Americans, you know, first you have to make that division between which generation you're discussing. And then even within those groups, you're going to have different individuals with different opinions that there were, you know, lots of Nisei who sort of embraced America to begin with. And um, some of them, you know, uh, I mean, obviously they were not happy about internment, but were somehow able to, you know, after the war, continue to assimilate um, and participate in American culture. And I'm sure you know, we're happy uh, and flattered by this new depiction uh, of uh, you know, their ancestors' culture. But um, on the other hand, you had um, plenty of Issei and Nisei both who were resentful of internment and probably very skeptical of this very sudden about face. And I think in a lot of cases, it just sort of depends on the individual. And you did have some that were mentioned that I mentioned uh, in the book, um, like uh, bonsai experts, uh, ikebana experts, you know, people who sort of make a career after the war of teaching Americans about Japanese arts. And also, yes, yeah, some, and especially some, there's some businessmen out in, on the West Coast, San Francisco and Los Angeles, who they're like, oh, hey, all these people want to buy our Japanese imports now. Uh, there's more interest in this than before. So they're happy to profit off of it. But yeah, outside of like individuals, I did not see a lot of evidence of a uh, huge embrace on the part of the Japanese uh, community, Japanese American community uh, towards this trend. I wanted to spend a few minutes, Megan, talking about Japanese cinema, because I think that's that's one of the most fascinating chapters in the book. As as we said earlier, the art house cinema was really getting going in the, in the early 1950s. And along comes um, Kurosawa's Rashomon. And I wondered if you could just say a little bit about how that film came to be shown in the States and what kind of reaction it, it provoked. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's a, like the whole thing is an interesting story that uh, Rashomon, yeah, it premiered in Japan and it did not do all that great. I think they made a profit on it, but barely because Japanese critics just, they were lukewarm about the movie. But uh, then it was at the Venice Film Festival, and actually Japan did not submit it to the Venice Film Festival. It was one of the people who were working, one of the Italians working on the festival uh, programmers who had seen this movie, and she's like, oh, people should really see this movie. And so Europeans get exposed to it. It wins the grand prize at Venice. And uh, after that, it's like there's a bunch of buzz about this movie. So an American importer or distributor uh, buys it, comes to New York, and Americans see this. And they're, yeah, they think this this uh, unique style of storytelling, which at the time, I mean, I feel like, yeah, I say in the book, like, by now it seems cliche, same story from several different viewpoints. But it was really innovative when Kurosawa first did it. And so, yeah, Americans are absolutely fascinated by this movie. The critics love it. A certain clientele, I should say. It's not like Rashomon was a blockbuster in the United States. It was, you know, it was very, very, very well received for an art house movie. But Godzilla, 
Godzilla's box office returns were like 10 times what Rashomon's were. Uh, in any event, uh, so after, yeah, Westerners embrace Rashomon, then the Japanese start going to see it as well. It gets re-released in Japan and does become incredibly successful in its home country uh, once it, they see the worldwide reaction. But uh, yeah, there hadn't really, or there hadn't, there hadn't been at all um, any Japanese movies that had been distributed in the United States uh, pretty much since the silent era um, before translation was an issue. And uh, so, yeah, so Americans, they're like, you know, it's not just, oh, here's this innovative style of filmmaking. I think a lot of them went as well to be, to see like, here's what Japan is like, you know, this country that we are now occupying and re-educating and everything else that we were doing in 1950 um, to sort of get a window into Japanese culture. Um, and I think that's all of that contributed to the popularity of that movie among uh, the art house uh, crowd. And those movies from Japan in the early 50s, which were popular, tended to be seen in a particular way, didn't they? It so happened that they were all historical costume dramas, but when critics wrote about them, they tended to admire them through the lens of older art forms, so they highlighted the framing, which might be reminiscent of a traditional print, or a sense of colour or composition. So even with contemporary art forms such as cinema, it was still being seen in the light of what were very old traditional arts. Yeah, and I think that is that's one of the things that uh, yeah sort of fascinated me ab about that. It's like the the theme running through the entire book is this treatment of Japan as you know a nation who's very much very traditional, sort of almost mired in tradition. Um, as I said before, they're sort of like ancient, they're timeless in this way. And they'll talk about you know Americans talk about other forms of like Zen Buddhism and bonsai cultivation and Japanese gardening as these ancient art forms, but they follow modernist aesthetics because they are minimalist and they don't involve any extraneous ornament uh, or anything like that. They seem to follow the same rules of uh, form, uh, or sorry, function over, or form over function uh, that uh, modernism does, yet while being modernist, they are also very much tied to the past. They are part of ancient Japan. You know, they're seen as, these are art forms that the Japanese have practiced since time immemorial that define them as a people. So I thought, yeah, it was interesting. It's like, well, it's one thing, you know, you do that with gardening or architecture, which have been around forever, but then you take this exclusively modern medium of cinema, which isn't really around until the 20th century, and even when the Japanese are engaging in that most modern of media, uh, Americans analyzing it still say, you know, all of this is tied to Japanese tradition and stems from this ancient, timeless source of Japanese aesthetics. Um, and I did find that interesting and sort of, a, in some ways, a good way to kind of hone the point of this book and how, you know, that sort of um, benign racism we mentioned before, like kind of at its root, it's the sense of Japan is always in the past, no matter what they do. Even if they use modern technology, their strengths still come from ancient Asian wisdom. Could John Cage have written 4 minutes 33 seconds, the infamous piece of silent music, if it hadn't been for the craze for things Japanese, do you think? Oh, that is an interesting way to phrase that question. You know, I think he probably still could have. I mean, one of the things I have thought about, uh, like John Cage and the beats, is that 
they they use Zen Buddhism. That's a big part of it, but they don't subscribe to Zen Buddhism specifically. I, I can't remember exactly who sort of uh, there's a quotation there about you know accusing them of like Oriental mishmash. Um, and that is kind of what they do. And actually, the way that John Cage came up with uh, 433, like the uh, the duration of each movement, is that he threw the I Ching sticks. And that's not even Japanese. So as long as Americans had some fascination with Eastern mysticism in any form, which they had, I mean, Kerouac was inspired by uh, Henry David Thoreau uh, when he was getting interested in Zen Buddhism. So there's a long tradition of that in American culture. And I think, yeah, that would have been enough uh, for Cage and Kerouac to sort of go down the paths that they did. But of course, they happen to do it at the same moment that the Zen boom specifically is also taking place in the United States. And Americans are fascinated with Japan um, more than other Asian countries because, you know, they are our important ally and they are starting to have this economic boom uh, and everything else going on that we would pay more attention to them. But uh, yeah, I think Cage and the Beats would have found their way to Eastern mysticism regardless There's a very nice distinction in an article you cite where Zen is sort of split in three and the author writes about beat Zen, square Zen and Zen. And I thought that was interesting because that sort of splitting is something we're going to see later, isn't it? As Japanese culture becomes more mainstream or goes into countercultures or subcultures. And this characterization of Zen points the way, doesn't it? Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. And yeah, it was it was Alan Watts who, uh, yeah, he first he wrote an essay in the Chicago Review, which then got reprinted as its own book and got reprinted elsewhere. Yeah, very famous uh, at the time, the Beat Zen, Square Zen and Zen. Yeah, his idea was that there's, yeah, the counterculture version, there's the upper middle class status seeking version, which is the Square Zen, and then there's the authentic version, which is the stuff he claims uh, to be practicing. Although there's other Zen practitioners who say Watts is not uh, authentic in the least, um, but that's yeah, a whole other uh, issue. But uh, yeah, it is kind of, I think, yeah, to some extent what happens like in the 60s and onwards is that, yeah, I think the, the beats, I mean, the beats often get credited with uh, paving the way for the later counterculture of the 1960s. But one thing that they do that then gets picked up on is um, this fascination with Eastern religion and mysticism and everything else. Um, although the thing is, though, like the the counterculture that comes later, it's not really the Japanese aesthetics that they're that interested in because they find that pretty dull and stayed. And it's sort of, you know, their parents were into Zen Buddhism. They're going to be into Tibetan Buddhism, which has all these colorful mandalas and everything else. And I guess if you take acid, it's a lot more interesting <laughs> to contemplate that than just, you know, a Sumi ink brush painting, which is like sort of the art of uh, the Zen Buddhist. So in some ways, actually, I, I think the Japanese aesthetics kind of stay square when other forms of uh, Oriental appreciation uh, go more counterculture, at least in like the, you know, the 20 years after the time period I'm talking about. But then in the 1990s, you do kind of get the Japanese with the anime and manga and video games and all that, you know, these more fully modern forms of Japanese culture. That's where, yeah, you get subcultures. Your book makes a compelling case that stereotypes have determined 
US attitudes to Japan for quite some time, going from the kamikaze pilot of the Second World War to the post-war Zen master full of ancient wisdom or the geisha. And you end the book really by suggesting that today's American stereotype of the Japanese is probably embodied by the repressed technology geek. Yeah, I think I think the the way um, Japan is conceived today is we definitely don't emphasize like the the traditional aspects as much. I mean, I think it's like you like Americans are aware that you know Japanese tradition is out there and it's you can see it there in their culture if you visit Japan. But I sort of feel like it's almost the opposite. Um, our perceptions these days of Japan is no longer mired in the past, but now slightly ahead of us in the future. <laughs> like they're you know it's like they're 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 just a little ahead of our time in terms of, of technology. You know, it's like they value technology more. They, you know, have robots part of their lives. You know, you, you see all these stories about Japanese companies that are working on robots as home caregivers and just emphasize Japanese technology. And I think it, it's sort of like technology and quirkiness, I would say, is sort of the, the approach and the main themes to Japan these days. And actually, uh, just yesterday... Um, I saw an article, actually it was on, it was in the BBC, um, it was talking about Japanese fans of the World Cup, and that they were tidying up after themselves, essentially, that they were bringing along trash bags, and they were picking up all their trash after the match, and how this has gone viral, and all these people on Twitter are commenting about, you know, how neat uh, the Japanese fans are, and the article, you know, had all this analysis of, you know, what does it show us about uh, Japanese culture that they value tidiness and politeness so much and all this other stuff. But then one thing I found really fascinating in that article is that it did admit at one point that the Senegalese fans do this as yeah. well, that they mm. also get bags and pick up trash. And it's like, well, then where's the article with the whole analysis of yes. how this is in Senegalese <laughs> culture? And it's like, I don't think we're seeing it because that sort of that 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 neatness and preciseness is part of uh, not just American, but Western understanding generally uh, of Japan's days as they are. Yes, they're very orderly. They're very civilized. They love their technology. They're a little bit weird in some ways. You know, I think that's kind of what our perception is um, these days of Japan. But yeah, it has it has changed a lot um, since the 1950s, I would say. It's still positive, uh, largely but, you know, it's, it's still also not 100% flattering. It's like, uh, yes, they're really good technology, but I think we also think of, yeah, they're, they're you know, neat freaks. They're, I think Americans also have a perception of Japanese as socially awkward. You know, one thing you see jokes about recently is like uh, that there are vending machines with schoolgirls' underwear in Japan, which is just, you know, bizarre and sexually repressed. And um, that is sort of, you know, a thread in the discourse uh, right now. So that's why, you know, I kind of get to the other yeah, repressed technology geek is would be the symbol of Japan these days as opposed to the Zen master or the geisha. Um, and of course, a lot of this has to do with, you know, Japan's economic expansion and technology expansion that begins really in the time period I'm talking about, but accelerates greatly in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, we're, we sort of associate Japan not with exported culture so much anymore in this country, but exported products. And most of those are cars and appliances and everything else related to technology. So, so I think, yeah, we've, we've, we have, uh, as like Americans, you know, generally speaking, have allowed Japan to become now part of the 21st century. We don't see them as mired in the past anymore. 
But, you know, we still see them as a little bit awkward and weird. And uh, they could probably learn some things from us, um, I think, is the general American attitude. I was talking to Megan Warner-Mettler about her book, How to Reach Japan by Subway. It's available from Nebraska University Press in hardback and as an ebook. If you've enjoyed this program, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the program on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed. And if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. You'll also find the program on SoundCloud, Mixcloud, and Stitcher. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>